Zen Buddhism has a very high cost of entry. You meditate. You meditate a lot. You might meditate for years. And if you're lucky, you get your moment of enlightenment. Whereas Stoicism, you can try it on a weekend. (laughs) And you'll know enough about it to be able to use some of the techniques in a competent manner. And you will have a chance to use those techniques. And you'll find out whether they work for you or not. So it's a very low price of admission. And many people, I I don't claim it's universal, but many people try it and realize, wow, this is great stuff. That was William B. Irvine. I'm Rich Bolas, and this is The Dead Mindset Show. This week, I wanted to share one of my favorite episodes with you from the archives. It's a chat I had with William B. Irvine back in 2021, who, in my mind, is one of the world's leading thinkers on Stoic philosophy. Bill is Professor of Philosophy at Wright State University, the author of several books, many of which offer insights to help navigate the human condition, including A Guide to the Good Life and The Stoic Challenge. If you're not sure what the Stoics might have to do with parenting, I urge you to listen on. I don't think you'll be disappointed. I hope you take as much from this conversation with Bill as I did. Bill Irvin. Thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. You've written a host of books based on Stoic philosophy or about using Stoicism to navigate life and and delight in the human condition. I mean, I think I've listened to A Guide to the Good Life maybe three or four times, and it's one of the books that I've recommended most to friends, and and it's really helped me from a parenting perspective. So I want to say thank you to start with about that. But I also liked a comment that you made at Stoicon that unless you're an unusual individual, everything you know about Stoicism is wrong. So could you possibly describe what Stoicism is in order to clear up any common misconceptions? Okay. And at first, I want to thank you for that very generous introduction. It's a pleasure, absolutely, to be here chatting with you. And also, first of all, thank the Stoic philosophers, not me, because the Stoic, I'm just the middleman. I'm just the messenger. I'm just passing it on. And then you also left out that one of my greatest personal accomplishments is not writing books, but I've been a dad, not once, but twice. Okay, but back to your question. So Stoicism, most people, if they look up Stoic in the the dictionary, they find it's a person who just is not very emotional, who will stand there and mutely take whatever life throws at him. And you get this picture of a person who is just very much internally conflicted, who is experiencing these emotions, but keeping them bottled up. But then, and that's certainly what I thought, I was a philosophy major, but I encountered the Stoics not in regular philosophy class, but in logic class, because they were the ones who kind of developed propositional logic, which is the kind that's used in computers today. So it came as a shock to me when I started actually reading the Stoics, and I realized they were a cheerful bunch of people, that they weren't suppressing negative emotions, that they simply weren't experiencing nearly as many of them as most people do experience, that they took pleasure in finding positive emotions like feelings of delight, like a sense of awe, like a feeling of joy. For them, that was that was the big deal. So they didn't stand there and just grimly take what life could throw at them when they were put in a tough situation. They didn't experience the negative emotions. There was nothing to bottle. 
So I thought, ah, here's some neat. And it turned out they had developed a number of psychological strategies. So there were the eminent psychologists of their time. And by Stoics too, I'm referring primarily to the Roman Stoics, first century AD. Stoicism started with the Greeks, but we don't have much of their writings. We have reports about what they wrote. And I think the the Roman Stoics put a, a wonderful spin on it and humanized it in a way that the Greeks didn't. Yeah. I didn't actually uh, mention that, of course, about you being a dad to children. What stage did you come across Stoicism and, and how did you actually apply it to being a dad, Bill? My kids were grown and off in college by the time I, I rediscovered Stoicism. I said I discovered it in a logic class, but not the kind that I'm interested in. So this would have been early 2000s. I had written two books that did not do well in the market. They did not find their market. That's, that's the, the, the way we put it, the euphemistic way we put it. But then I wrote a book on desire, thinking I, was, I wanted to become a, a Zen Buddhist. And I thought, so I'm going to do research on that. But I could probably get a book out of it. But to be complete, I had to include the Stoics in that book because I was talking about different philosophies of life and read the Stoics and were just blown away because of Zen Buddhism has a very high cost of entry. You meditate, you meditate a lot, you might meditate for years. And if you're lucky, you get your moment of enlightenment. Whereas Stoicism, you can try it on a weekend <laughs> and you'll know enough about it to be able to use some of the techniques in a competent manner. And you will have a chance to use those techniques and you'll find out whether they work for you or not. So it's a very low price of admission. And many people, I, I don't claim it's universal, but many people try it and realize, wow, this is great stuff. What are some other psychological techniques, Bill? How would you suggest someone actually try it over a weekend? The introductory technique that I always use is negative visualization. And that's when you imagine not having something that you value. So you pick something and it could be your job. It could be some object you like. It could be your car. It could be your health or some aspect of your health. Could be your partner or spouse. Could be your children. And it's a really interesting thing because if you are a parent, it's this incredible U-shaped curve of the happiness of parents where, you know, you discover that you're going to have a baby. And if, you, if it's a wanted baby, it's, it's a wonderful experience. But then your wife becomes increasingly large and less capable of doing a variety of things. And then you bring home a baby. And that's like, there are the high points all along the way. But then you find out about what it's like to change a diaper. And then you find out about what it's like to change a diaper and then five minutes later change a diaper on the same kid again. <laughs> and then change a diaper with a, a bodysuit as well. Because <laughs> yeah, you can have those yeah. pops as well. Yeah. And you you uh you you reach the stage and then at some point along the way you've got a sultry teenager to deal with, a teenager who is vastly smarter than you are about <laughs> everything. And of course, when it comes to technology, they genuinely are smarter. Yeah. And then finally, they head off for college and you emerge from that U-shaped curve. But when you're in the midst of that curve, one thing to think about is this child. 
what if I did not have this child anymore? What if I get this phone call? Or, or what if my wife comes in crying and tells me about the terrible accident? Uh, so you don't want to dwell on that. But to occasionally think about that is a wonderful thing. Because once you stop thinking about it, and again, it requires a few seconds time, you will realize what a lucky person you are to have that child in your life. And it's a kind of thing you can try. You can try with anything. Suppose, you know, in, when I'm in front of audiences, I have people imagine, have them close their eyes, and I have them imagine that this is all they would ever see in the rest of their life. And then I say, okay, in a minute here, we're going to open our eyes, but hold on. I want you to imagine now that they're somehow glued shut. You'll never be able to open them again. Give them some time to think. And then I say, okay, open your eyes. And, you know, you realize, wow, this ability to see, it's just so amazing. And yet I take it utterly for granted. Now, when it comes to kids, another very useful exercise is what I call the last time meditation. Because we have finite lifespan, there will be a last time for everything we do. There will be a last time you you kiss your wife. There will be a last time you mow the lawn. There will be a last time you lay your head on the pillow, a last breath that you take. There will be a last time for everything. But that's particularly poignant when you think about children and the processes of growing up. My son is now, I, I've shrunk to 5'8 or 5'7. <laughs> my, my son is 6'1 or 6'2. Oh, and, you know, you realize, so I look at him and I realize there was a last time he sat on my lap. Yeah. There was. And you never know. You never know when the last time is going to come, but you know for a fact, absolute certain that there will be a last time. So diapers, not fun to change, <laughs> not fun to change. You get good at it after a while, but yeah. still not fun to change. But then realize someday that it's going to be a memory memory of the past, and there will be a last one that you change, and then the kid will no longer need it. The kid will no longer need you to the same extent that they did when they're young. And kids are such a delight to have around. They're like sponges. You know, they soak up everything. I have a, a niece that uh, I think our grandniece, I can't even keep straight how it works, but she's <laughs> about four years old and just getting into things. And so she said, asked if I wanted to play a puzzle, do a puzzle with her. And so I said, oh, yeah, I taught her the concept of a corner piece of a puzzle, you know, awesome. and I was picking them out. And I said, oh, look, this is a corner piece, right? And she's there just kind of observing. And just that is absolutely delightful because they light up. They light up. Now, by the time they're 10, that's going to be gone. You know, it's going to be gone. They're going to be jaded individuals. So soak up those moments when you've got them as a parent, you know, a chance to play with your kid, chance to sing a silly song with your kid, because there will be a last one. And it kind of keeps the experience alive uh, to the extent that, that it, it can be. So take advantage embrace it soak it up because it's not going to last yeah i agree thanks but it reminds me of when i started out as a parent and before as a parent i really struggled to to play and engage with younger children uh, i 
I just was too sort of, I don't know what it was. But um, it's only in the last few years that I've really started to loosen up. And I think it's almost, you know, sort of just not giving a damn about what other people think so much and, and not taking myself seriously. And it's so much better. Like, I feel like I can just really absorb what, what the kids are putting out and just join in with them and so on in a much better way. But I, I think you refer to it as like a second childhood as well in when you've given talks about aging gracefully and stuff. Can Can you talk to that a little bit, Bill? Yeah, I, I don't need a second childhood. I'm still working on my first one. Thank you very much. <laughs> but my first one is still working for me. So, um, and, you know, I, kids are great. Grownups, eh, you know, some of them are pretty okay, but they tend to be set in their ways. They tend not to take delight in things. They're bored. They tend not to express, you know, the feeling of awe that a kid can express. So you can take a kid, saw a video on this. It was a father and a kid at the beach for the first time. And the father had this funny shaped pail. And then the kid's watching the father and the father shovels sand into the pail. And the kid's watching, wondering, this is a strange thing for a father to be doing. (laughs) And then the father inverts it uh, in the sand and carefully lifts it up. And it's a mold. And what's left behind is a sand castle in the shape of a castle and the kid is just blown away and that's just wonderful to (laughs) be um to be part of that experience also somewhere and and something i've done i describe a situation where there was this big family reunion and somebody asked if i could chip in a big part to make it possible and i said well sure you know i can and then uh, but it was somebody else arranging it, setting it up, you know, figuring out the food, figuring out the seating uh, and everything else. And I got there and went to the table where you looked to where you were seated and then very quickly realized I had been seated with the children. <laughs> <laughs> there were grown-ups in the other, but I was seated with the children. And at first it was just like this, oh, what an insult. And then... <laughs> I recalled a line of Seneca, you know, where he was at a party and he wasn't seated at the main part of the party, but off on another chair, you know, and he was sitting there stewing, thinking, well, this isn't right. I deserve better than this. And then it dawned on him what a fool it was, what a fool he was if he cared what chair he sat on. So that was helpful. And I actually found I had more fun at the kids' table (laughs) than I would have had at the uh, adult table. So kids are grand. They they haven't got it figured out. They're willing to try. They're willing to experiment. They're willing to learn. They're great objects to give love to. You know, the the, the whole notion of a loving relationship, I think you gain most from the loving part. The receiving part is nice too, but the loving part, is very important and it can be life transforming it gives you an opportunity to get out of yourself yeah and that's one of the most important growth experiences there is yeah i couldn't agree more bill and going back to the negative visualization i remember only this week experiencing it going into the bedroom and like the kids always leave their drawers open and then you can't shut the door to the wardrobe to get through into the room and Mm. every time i would go past and, and it would niggle me or, uh, or irk me. And I was like, oh man, how hard is it to close these drawers? And it would be one of those things that it's, it's nothing. It's just, it's just a door in the way and the drawers are open. You, 
you know how to get past it, or at least you can expect it. But every time it's like a surprise that they haven't decided to tidy the the space so you can get into the room. And then reading the book again, I was like, you know what? In 20 years time, I am just going to walk into this room, hopefully, and it'll just be tidy and it'll stay tidy, but it'll be empty. And how sad will that be? You know, I'll actually, I'll really miss, you know, having the kids in the house. And it'll be one of those things that I actually miss in the future because I'll know that the kids have just grabbed their clothes and run off to school. And and it sort of made me really feel so grateful for like the moment. And I'm trying to get those snapshots as much as I can now of, yeah, just experience this moment right now because it it isn't going to be around forever. You can, you can get so sidetracked in that, the bottom of the you, when you're sleep yeah. deprived and you're just flat chat busy on everything. But I think it's so good to actually just stop and take a breath and appreciate the things that would normally bother you. Oh, yeah. And I watch myself each day getting bothered by little tiny things and realizing that is so stupid. Uh, so stupid. There's one technique I describe, and I think it's um, Stoic Challenge, got a fancy name, Prospective Retrospection, where as you live this very moment, you think about how you're going to think about this very moment sometime in the future. And uh, whatever you do, there's a very good chance that you're going to look back at that moment and you're going to say, man, I wish I could be there again. So these are the good old days. You may not know it now, but someday you will. So, you know, when I'm out doing something I don't particularly want to be doing, if I'm mowing the lawn, the realization that there will come a time in my life when I'll be uh, perhaps in a, a can't move much in a nursing home, who knows what lies in store. And I'll look back and I'll say, oh, I was, a, I was strong. I was young. I could mow that lawn. Uh, and now I can't. Uh, so we tend to look, you know, we're, we're programmed to look ahead and to look back. So we look ahead. We, we're anxious about the future. We look back. We, uh, we like to, to ruminate on things that were unfair that happened to us in the past. But to stay in the moment, which is very difficult to do, but not even in the moment, but in the experience. The experience we're having right now is an experience that someday we won't have. And we'll look back on this and we'll say, wow, you know, if I could get back to that. For me to get back, you know, I, my six plus foot tall son, uh, it'd be neat. he used to watch, we used to go to movies and he would sit in my lap the whole movie. And, uh, you know, at the time, <laughs> uh, it's a hot way to see a movie, you know, <laughs> but to get back, you know, if somebody said, okay, how much would you pay for one movie? Travel back in time. It's going to cost you. What would you pay? I would pay a, a handsome sum for the chance to do that again. Yeah. And yet when it was happening, it's just, ah, this is how it works. Yeah. And that, and that's the thing, isn't it? Because it's so easy in those moments to, to almost be an almost kind of just grumble slightly but and the kids overhear that and it would be terrible for them to actually get that feeling that you didn't actually want to spend the time with them so if you can catch it in or at least catch yourself just before complaining like you talk about the five second what is it the psychological window five second rule yeah yeah right so if if you something's making you angry 
you have five seconds to nip it in the bud. And if you don't, it's going to start smoldering. And at two o'clock that night, when you're trying to sleep, it's going to take over your mind and you're going to spend time thinking about that. Uh, So anger, and I still have, I still am quite capable of getting angry. But now I have anger at a whole new level. Because when I get angry, I get angry at myself for having gotten angry because I know what a stupid thing it is to do. I'm I'm there cursing myself. You fool. You fool. You let that stupid incident make you angry. Uh, So I'm a a stoic in progress here. And uh, that's the interesting thing. It's like uh, any skill that you develop. It'll have multiple aspects. And the aspect that you're working on at that moment is going to be working really good. But the thing is, there are 20 other aspects that you're not paying attention to. So <laughs> yeah. they, they disintegrate. What, what are some of the other tools that, you know, we as parents can have in our toolkit? Well, one of them is the bedtime meditation. This is a Stoic philosopher, Seneca. He, he came up with this. And he said, at bedtime, before you drift off, you pause and you think about the day's events. And you give yourself grades on them. And some of them you say, well, you know, I did really well there. Uh, that was good. I created a memory that's uh, that's going to linger. In another case, you know what? I got grumpy at the kid and it was really not necessary. There's another way I could have handled it. So you think back. So you're a work in progress. Your days are the clay with which you're going to build this beautiful edifice that is going to be your uh, your life. So you think think about the day. Uh, what did you do right? You congratulate yourself. What did you do wrong? Well, okay, you're not going to dwell on the past, but you're going to think about, okay, so what should I have done and what could I do in those same circumstances in the future? Yeah, great. I like one of the stories in... I think it's the Stoic challenge when you talk about Stoic setbacks as well or setback challenges, yeah. especially like at the airport. It's so easy for people to be thrown out. Can you talk a bit about that one, Bill? Yeah. So Stoics realized one of their great insights that was rediscovered late in the 20th century by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky and, and these famous psychologists was this phenomenon called framing. So think about a a work of art. Is it beautiful or not? Well, you know, kind of depends on what frame you put around it, because you can put a frame around it that's going to make it very beautiful. You can put a different frame that's going to make it hideously ugly. So if someone gives you a piece of art, it's it's yours to keep. Uh, You don't have control over that, but you can choose the frame. And that's the same with life's uh, events. And there's a choice of frames you can have. So suppose somebody insults you. You can play the victim uh, role. You can put a victim frame around it and say it was unfair and he's mean. And Or you can also play, uh, put it in a comedic frame, turn it into a kind of joke. And by doing that, you're not only not going to let it hurt you, but you're going to come away laughing and you're going to baffle the person who insulted you because, you know, they're going to say, well, you realize I just insulted you. And you're going to say, yeah, I know. And (laughs) it just disarms them uh, completely. So when life sets you back, one of the frames that you can use is the stoic test frame. So you, you imagine that you're being tested to see whether, number one, you're capable of finding a workaround for the setback. And number two, whether you can keep your cool. 
while you do. And it changes the whole experience of being sent back because it's it, instead of simply being an annoying event, it becomes a chance for you to show your stuff, to show how good you are. And also the last two things I've talked about there, in particular insults, when I first started writing about Stoicism, I assumed it was a middle-aged adult philosophy uh, that you had to have some experience of life and then you know you could you could see what these wise uh, old stoics uh, had to say but since then many people have approached me and said well what about kids and my first impulse is well they're too young they couldn't get it but the more <laughs> that was my people next approached <laughs> me okay and the more i thought about it you know the playground's a tough place I argue it's the fly. toughest place because you've got hard oh, life experience. Yeah, like, if you get you, past the playground, <laughs> you're, you're, gonna, you're a survivor. But that, that it is just these techniques for dealing with insults. So it's a wonderful thing to teach kids. Yeah. Well, how would you, know, how would you actually make a joke out of go about that, Bill? Have you tried teaching uh, kids? Nope, I have not. My kids were, were grown yeah. um, by the time I, I became uh, stoic. So I don't have experience in this. There are people who have approached me and have said that they're uh, trying stuff. I don't know how those experiments worked out. But on the playground, um, you know, just the knowledge that the person who insulted you is trying to hurt you, trying to inflict emotional harm on you, and that you have this choice of of simply not reacting uh, or of laughing it off and how how effective that is. a deeper level is you insult yourself even worse than they did. Uh, but I don't know, maybe that's a little bit too sophisticated for kids on the playground. But there are strategies like that. And, you know, the whole notion of a test of, uh, and I suppose you can teach them with, by example, too, you know, that when something bad comes along, then you turn it into a kind of game of, oh, oh, let's see if we can rise to this challenge. Yeah. Okay. And then you show them. So let's think about what we could do here. Now let's stay calm and cool so we can think through our <laughs> options. And then what are we going to, what are we going to do next? So you do have a um, fair amount of, um, you know, you're the model and yeah. uh, they're going to copy that model to some extent. And, and I think it's so easy to forget just everything is being watched heard yes and seen so yes. so if you can even do that for a, a small time they're going to pick it up so yeah. <laughs> that's yeah um, so important um obviously but it's um, also uh, a high bar <laughs> to try and keep yeah, doing it all the time uh, another another thing along those same lines is failure if you're a kid you experience lots and lots of failures so i, I read somewhere the other day the statistics i'm going to get it wrong but a one-year-old typically falls down 85 times i'm just making up a number but it's a huge number in a day what does he do gets up again right so this incredible resilience that comes with being a kid but as you get older then there's this whole notion of failure and dealing with failure and i guess there's a generation that's been sheltered from failure you know you have competitions where everyone wins yeah uh, everyone uh, is but special some, but technically that yeah, can't everyone, be true <laughs> everyone is special but then there comes a time when you lose so teaching them how to lose and because is it really a loss if you tried your best you did what you could yeah and the other people were just better 
So maybe there's, if it's a sport, maybe you should be trying a different sport or maybe you need to, to try harder. Um, but you've said this about harder. rowing, haven't you? You can actually lose the race, but if you gave everything, you left everything on the, on the, the, yep. the racetrack, I'm not sure, the lane, then that's a win. You won because you did all yeah. the things that you had control over. And I did the best I could. And you know what? For anybody to say, well, you should do more than the best you could. Well, that's just crazy talk. Uh, That's just crazy talk. And that whole notion of losing, of doing something difficult, knowing that because it's difficult, there's a good chance you're going to fail, of consciously doing that. And then you learn, oh, guess what? I failed. Oh, guess what? I can bounce back. Yeah, I can bounce back. So I read another statistic that the average billionaire on his way to becoming a billionaire, I might just be making these statistics up. So please don't. <laughs> That's okay. 68.6% of all average of, of 2.8 times that they went bankrupt oh, wow. on their way to be to becoming successful in this financial sense of the, the word. I don't know if it really is success, but um if you want to be successful in that sense, you need to do difficult things. You need to do them well. And that means you need to be able to fail and bounce back. So one lesson for kids is let them fail. Yeah. Let them fail. Now, you, they should be controlled failures where it isn't catastrophic uh, consequences. But it's a good thing. It's a good thing because they will grow up to be resilient human beings. Um, you know, just a broader theme there is, I know when I was a kid, I was a free range kid, you know, we, we were told go out and play. And we did. And all sorts of we did crazy things. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I tell my wife some of the crazy things we did, and she can't believe it. But I was much more cautious with my kids that would have been in the in the 80s. And, uh, you know, I think I learned something from my youthful misadventures. So I wonder, maybe maybe I should have set them out in the forests. I don't know what, what, what would be the, the right way to do it, but just more encouraging. So for, for your kids to, to, to realize failure is okay. Failure means you tried hard. And I suppose and, the hardest uh, thing is for us to demonstrate that because it's almost yeah. like we... As adults, it's it's the worst thing that can happen. It's it's you know socially yep. you don't admit to failure, and and yet yep. if you're not doing it yourself, how can you expect your kids to do it? So I guess we have to we have to personify that, you know, and and talk yeah. through the, our failures with them as well. Uh, here's a an easy line to use when somebody fails. I I use it on myself, and and that is uh, so I'm I'm in a race, I lose. And, you know, just corner of my mind, yeah, I lost to these people, but I beat the 7 billion human beings who didn't even have the courage to show up at the starting line. And, you know, that puts it into a, a different perspective altogether. Yeah. If you want never to fail, if that's your goal, it's easy to attain that goal. Just never try anything hard. Yeah, those are great, great phrases to to use with the kids as well and ourselves i think and it reminds me of something you've said before as well bill you know um it is difficult on becoming aware of just how contingent our very existence is not to feel very lucky to be part of the universe at all and yeah we live in a magnificent universe now you're in australia right yep just near melbourne well i'm in the united states and we have the blue skies do you guys have them as well (laughs) yeah You know, it didn't have to be that way, but it's 
blue. Isn't that incredible? Now, you can go through life thinking in those terms, or you can not even notice the incredible universe around us and the incredible series of events that had to take place for you to be here, for you as a human being to be here. You know, if somebody three generations back had missed a train, you know, and then the coincidental meeting and so on, you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be here. Yeah. Uh, so uh, if, if the different sperm had won the race, you wouldn't be here. So it's, it's incredible. And yet most people take it utterly for granted. And even worse, a lot of people waste the one life they have to live trying to what? Impress other people. And now with the social media, you can spend your life trying to impress complete strangers. You can be in this race for likes you know, and followers and retweets and everything else. But these are complete strangers that you're letting control your life. And that's crazy. Yeah. How, I mean, you've talked quite a bit about in your books about having your own philosophy for life. Like, how do you go about building that? And, and why is it so important, Bill? You don't have to. The beautiful thing is you don't have to build it from the ground up because plans already exist for how to do that. And so there have been lots of people in the past who uh, considered this issue. And for me, a philosophy of life has two components. First, the question is, what in life is valuable? What should your ultimate goal in life be? You have goals from moment to moment, from day to day, but what should your life goal be? What should you be aiming at such that when it comes time to die, you can say, I, that was a successful life. That was a good life, a life worth living. And the second thing is, and this is a practical aspect, uh, a philosophy of life will provide you with a strategy for attaining that goal. So Stoics have philosophy of life, Epicureans do, Buddhists do, Zen Buddhists do. One of the surprises of my early research was that Zen Buddhists and Stoics kind of were aiming at the same ultimate target, a target of being a, a life with very few negative emotions, positive, lots of positive emotions, a life of delight, a life that you enjoyed to the fullest. And they just had wildly different strategies for attaining that goal. So if you're a Zen Buddhist, you do lots of meditations. If you're a, a Stoic, uh, you have these strategies. We've explored some of them that you use to try to keep things on a positive side. Yeah. I actually remember, because I used to live in Japan, I remember going to a tea ceremony. And it was in this amazing setting, uh, like overlooking, and the rain was falling gently outside on the, on the plants. Ah. And there was a beautiful tatami floor with a, a whole wall of the building exposed to the garden. Yep. And then this, uh, this lady in a beautiful kimono served this uh, amazing matcha to my friend and I. And, and we went through the process of, you know, where you pick up the cup and you turn it twice and you appreciate yep. it. And, and the idea is to look at it because it's, it's a handmade cup and, and you're only ever going to see it from that perspective once in your life, never again. Yep. And, and then you take a sip, savor, look at how the tea leaves are forming and the patterns and how it reflects on the cup. And then you turn it back the other way and you sort of bow down and thank the person taking in the whole environment. And it was such an amazing experience of trying to be as present as possible and being so grateful and thankful and, and, and in awe of everything. And it, it really touched me. And I try to do this 
as much as I can. And I remember you mentioning even about the glasses half full versus the yes. glasses half empty. And can you talk a bit about like what the glass is anyway? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. So first, of, uh, I, there's a comment on that. There would be people who went to that ceremony and who paused in the middle of it to check their cell phone. True. Right. Yeah. And so that's the problem. We're multitasking. We're continuously distracted. Uh, we invite the distraction into our, our, our lives. I know, I know I do. I know when it comes time to write, I have to turn my phone off. I have to shut down all the uh, rival computer screens. So we live in a distracted age. But if you, um, and my wife and I take walks and um, we're in, in leaf season, the leaves are changing colors and we just marvel. At, at all there is. So that's what it's about. It's soaking it up. I realized that I have a wife who will say the, the words, oh, look, oh, look. And I realized how doubly lucky I am to have in my life a woman who, number one, is blown away, is excited, is takes delight in something, and number two, wants to include me in it. Now, that's something you can take as just a throwaway, you know, but it's really something very special. On glass, you know, they always have the old saying, is glass half full or is the glass half empty? A Stoic would go further. He would first of all say, well, it's, um, it's half full. And then he would go on to say, oh, and look at the glass. Isn't glass wonderful? It imparts no taste on the liquid within it. You can see through to see the liquid within it, and yet it's cheap and inexpensive. It's that amazing. So hand him the empty glass and he might say, oh, it's a glass. That's amazing. So that notion of, of redeveloping the sense, the sense of amazement that you had when you were a kid. And then it went away. You know, your typical 10-year-old is like, nothing, <laughs> nothing impresses me anymore. But you can get it back. It's going to take a little bit of effort on your part. But you can get it back. And that notion of, of trying to... I, I, it's really hard to truly be in the moment and stay there for any length of time, but just to be awake to the world around you is a wonderful thing. You had it when you were a kid, work on getting it back. Yeah. And you've talked, uh, I think a lot of people confuse Stoicism a little bit with religion, especially when it's talked about Buddhism at the same time. Can you talk a bit about religion and, and Stoicism, Bill? Yeah, the Roman Stoics and the Greek Stoics is that, well, all would have had religion because everybody did. They didn't have science. And so if you wanted to explain why things happened, well, the, the gods. So, But Stoicism itself uh, is not a religion. Uh, I do, in a Stoic challenge in particular, refer to the Stoic gods. For me, they're, they're these imaginary beings. They help me fill out the story. They're the ones who are testing me when uh, setbacks come along. Why are they testing me? To make me stronger to make me courageous. And so, so it's the right kind of test. They're great coaches. That's what a good, uh, a good coach will, will do. But it's compatible with religion. And if you know Christianity, you're probably familiar with the serenity prayer. God grant me the wisdom. And I'm going to muddle it here. Uh, you know, the, to know the things I can't control, the things I can't. Well, that's taken from the Stoics. Uh, so you can be both a Stoic and um, a Christian. In fact, there's evidence that the early Christians were under, to some extent, influence of the Stoics. You can also be a Stoic and a Zen Buddhist. Uh, Henry Shukman is one of the 
uh, American Zen masters. And I asked him that directly. And I, he said, well, of course, you know, for him, it was like, <laughs> not, not even going to try to try to do to debate it. So it's psychological strategies for dealing with daily life. And, you know, if you think there is a God, you can use those strategies. And if you don't think there's a God, you can use those strategies. Uh, Like negative visualization, you know, prayers of thanks, I've been thinking about lately. Those would be psychological strategies. Just it's like negative visualization. Like saying grace Uh, at the dinner table. Yes, exactly. And what you're doing is you're trying to get over that feeling of taking it for granted. And you're basically going to put yourself in a frame of mind where you're realizing it didn't have to be here, but it is. And that is just absolutely wonderful that it is. So it isn't a religion. It's utterly compatible with most religions, though. Yeah. And I like the way that, you know, essentially we've got this hardware, uh, sorry, this hardware that's like archaic and, and yeah. we've got this opportunity to update our operating system. And that's kind of what stoicism does, doesn't it? It just enables us to, you know, look at the, the programming that we have in our, our daily thinking and, and, and jig it so that it actually sets us up for a, a more sort of happy life, which I think is totally different to the way everyone thinks about stoicism. Yeah, the Stoics were cheerful individuals. They were rational individuals. They didn't understand about evolution back then, but you evolved from uh, being, go back far enough in your family tree and you'll come to a worm. Go further back and there will be a single-celled animal. (laughs) And the interesting thing is you evolved in such a way that you kept the early components, the, the lizard component, you know, the reptilian component capable of reflexive anger. You've still got that capable of sexual desire. You've still got that. The mammalian component, which uh, layered on, this is a very simplified description of it, layered on emotions, a, ca- a capacity for love, um, capacity for envy, that whole notion of social position. And then finally, uh, last uh, 78,000 years, <laughs> roughly, the rational component. So these components you've got lurking inside your skull, these three different components. They have three different ways of dealing with life. And yet you're locked in your skull with them forever. (laughs) So you're the newbie, the the new kid on the block. And, and yeah, and, and you, you are, you, you're the late comer. And so that then the question is, so the Stoics didn't understand the, the evolutionary reason for that, but did understand, you know, we, we have these, uh, these passions within us and they figured out ways, not just, to deal with the passions, but to harness the passions and make them work for you. So in this whole notion of um, treating things as challenges, uh, you know, inflicted on you or handed to you by these stoic gods, then uh, you, can, you can not only prevent the, the anger from arising within you, but you can kind of harness it. Oh, those stoic gods, let's show them who's in charge here. Let's show them who's capable of dealing with this setback. So it's beautiful, thoughtful, you know, brilliant strategy. Uh, and if you ever could get out of your skull, just the rational part of you, I don't think life would be worth living. You know, the, the human experience of falling in love, uh, you know, is, is a wonderful thing. So uh, yeah, it can turn your life upside down, but still having children, raising children, wonderful experiences. 
And, uh, I, you know, I, if I had it to do over again, I would definitely do it over again, but it's not right for everybody. And there are some people who would, um, just, it would be like being in prison. Um, yeah. but for a lot of people, it, it just, it gets you out of yourself. That's the big thing. Yeah. Bill, I've loved this chat and I'm, I'm so grateful for you taking time today. I know you've got a ton on, so I'll, I'll let you go now, but thank you so much for sharing those thoughts with us. Yeah. I'm so glad we could get together and have this conversation. Thanks ever so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Bill as much as I did. If you did enjoy it, please could you do me a favor and forward it to your best friend and ask them what they think about it. Also, if you could write a review or give the episode some stars on whatever platform you're using, I'll send you a massive internet-traversing hug. Internet-traversing? Yeah, whatever. As always, I've put links to Bill and his books in the show notes at thedadmindset.com, which is where you can also subscribe to receive an update each time a new episode goes live. Well, that's all from me. I hope you stay safe and sane, and in the immortal words of Ryan Reynolds as Blue Shirt Guy, don't have a good day, have a great day.